Hey, all my IFG friends, this is Steve. I want to say, you know, if you like movies like I do, we've started a new podcast called Happy Hour Flicks. Uh, you can find it anywhere podcasts are found. It's all about nostalgic movies that we love, and we bring on special guests each episode, and we also have specialty cocktails made for each one, too. So it really is an hour of a good time talking about movies that we love, like Gremlins, uh, Seven, uh, Free Willy. Uh, we talk about The Last Starfighter also. So, I mean, we kind of run the gamut across all the decades and really have a great time. So I wanted to invite you to come over and join us at Happy Hour Flicks, anywhere podcasts are found. Matt Mundy, what's going on, man? Hey. Oh, I got you muted. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. We're, they're not editing this out. They're leaving that yeah, we're in. Leaving we're the, leaving that hey, in. there I am. Hey, there oh, you are. Awesome. Huh. How are you doing today? I'm good, bud. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing just fine. Doing just fine. You know, it's, starting, it's that time of year in New York where everything's starting to get a little more quiet or a little more cold. Yep, yep. Feel the winter coming on. Yeah. <laughs> Regret uh, all life decisions for being on the East Coast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, which is uh, kind of appropriate because we're talking to somebody based out of L.A. today. Right, but he's from Brooklyn. That's right. Matthew, oh, best of both worlds. Yeah, Matthew Gentile, writer-director of the film American Murderer which is out in theaters uh, of the day of recording it. So we're, the day right. we're recording it, it drops in theaters today, 40 theaters across yeah. the U.S. Okay, yeah, 40 theaters. And, um, and then by the time uh, our listeners are uh, on this, it's probably going to be uh, an all uh, T-VODs, right? Right, all T-VODs. Basically, it's a real-life sort of crime drama. It's in the catch-me-if-you-can camp, you know, the yeah. kind of like uh, – you know the, the 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 cat and mouse game of the the the, the officials and the FBI trying to track down this mastermind criminal con artist. Yeah, and he's got a great cast assembled. Can't wait to talk. A to hell him of about a that. cast. The I mean the, uh, the 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 supporting cast. I mean all the cast is really good. Just really surprising. Every time you cut to a new scene, you're like, oh wow, that person's in it. Yeah, yeah, and they all get their like moment and everything. And uh, um, but yeah, it's kind of like that catch me if you can and that procedural, you know engine behind it the procedural drama right the fbi right behind every single uh piece which is great yeah absolutely so yeah after uh, one no further ado what do you say you want to jump in and talk to matthew yeah let's do it this is the, the independent 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 filmmaker's guide from framework productions framework framework productions matthew Thank you very much for joining us here. We got Matthew Gentile on today. And uh, man, thanks for sending over the movie. Really enjoyed getting to see American Murderer um, like first and, you know, up front and everything. So I think, so first of all, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So you are the writer and director. And before we get too deep in here, can you tell what is, what is the movie about? Can you sum it up for us in just like a couple, you know, short sentences? Yeah, American Murderer is uh, based on a true story of Jason Derrick Brown, a charismatic con man who became the FBI's most unlikely and elusive top 10 fugitive. And so the film is about his life and how he became this enigmatic figure um, and also about the manhunt and the attempt to bring him to justice. Um, So it's, you know, on the surface, it's a cat and mouse thriller. Tom Pelfrey plays Jason Derrick Brown. Brian Phillips plays the special agent Lance Leising, who is on his trail. And the film, you know, uh, has a ensemble cast with Jackie Weaver, but J- Tom, Jason Derrick Brown's mother, Chantel Van Stenton, uh, plays his sister, Paul Schneider, Moises Arias, 
uh, yeah, it's a, really it's a crazy cast. cast. It, yeah, it's amazing. Cast is just crazy. I mean, and that's we definitely want to talk about casting. But first of all, like, how did you? This is, I mean, it, it's crazy that this guy is on the list with like Whitey Bulger and, and Osama, Osama bin, bin Laden, Laden. <laughs> <laughs> and somebody you've never heard of. How did you come across the right. story? Well, my sentiments exactly. I, I felt the same way, and that's that was the first thing that got me to you know start on this journey. So. Back when I was 14 years old, this crime was committed. The movie takes place in 2004. And uh, I used to, that was around the time when I was 14. And before I wanted to be a filmmaker, I actually wanted to be an FBI agent. So I used to go on the FBI's top 10 most wanted fugitives website. They used to have it. They still have it, the FBI.gov. If you go on there, you can look at the top 10 fugitives. And I used to look at the fugitives, you know, mugshots and see if I could help that's catch the money and get the reward money. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, as kids do. And I was immediately struck by Jason's face for the exact reasons you just said. You know, there was, you had these mean, menacing criminals like Whitey Bulger and Osama Bin Laden, criminal masterminds, you know, kind of geniuses at what they did. And even despite how evil they were, they were, you know, very sophisticated criminals. And then you have this surfer dude, punk from Southern California. Something about it just didn't quite fit the bill. Yeah. So I went and I asked myself, you know, who was this guy? And I, you know, looked at the case a little and I was like, okay. And I didn't think about it for a while. Cut to 14 years later, I'm fresh out of film school at the AFI. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what is that? What's that first movie? What does it look like? You know, is it going to be, you know, how, you know, how much do I make it for you? I'm just like everybody else who's graduated film school and has no idea what <laughs> their first film's going to be. And sure enough, on one day I was storyboarding. I had a branded content gig that I was shooting and I was story, I was drawing on my shots for it. And as I'm storyboarding, I have the TV on in the background. And sure enough, Jason Derrick Brown's face just popped on the TV screen. <clears throat> and I couldn't believe it. I said, oh my God, this guy, he's still missing. Like what? what happened here? You know, did he, you know, how did he, how did he elude capture this one? Because Bin Laden and Bulger were caught, right? But this guy wasn't. So I was immediately transfixed. I was like, hmm, something about this doesn't seem right. So I turned up the volume. And as I started to learn more about Jason and this story, what initially fascinated me was this was a guy who meant so many different things to so many different people. You know, he was so good at playing different roles in the con man that he convinced a lot of people into falling in love with him, into doing all kinds of crazy things for him. And so I just became really fascinated by the story um, and what it was about and, you know, what it said about, you know, our culture and our times. With, you know, why do we fall for con artists? Why does this keep happening? Because it is a very prevalent theme, I think, in American culture, you know, and, and the world, but American culture specifically. So I just became really interested in the story and I just thought to myself, well, you know, on the surface, you have this fun cat and mouse thriller, but on underneath it, it, it could be a really cool character study, right? That kind of explores the psyche of someone who is really deplorable. And I just became really interested and fascinated. And I just said, why isn't this my first feature? And right. so that began the journey of making American Murder. So I guess within that journey, at what point were you uh, looking at um, realizing, oh, I got to get story rights for this? And uh, how did that go? Uh, what, how did that happen for you? <laughs> Well, I will tell you, and this is a podcast for people who are, you know, learning to, you know, wanting to get into film. And I know a lot of people who have told me like a very informative one. I will tell you, I was a little stupid. 
Um, and I wrote <laughs> we, a lot as, of it. as we all, we all are. are for sure. <laughs> I, I was a little dumb about it, and I wrote the script. I just wrote the script on spec, which isn't necessarily dumb. Actually, there's kind of two. When you do true stories, which is all I do now, um, they kind of have. There's two schools of thought. Some yeah, are. I want to talk about social life. Yeah, no, but go ahead. Yeah, exactly. And so some are go get IP as fast as you can, like nab the first thing you can get, whether it's an article or a book or something. Um, and in the case of Jason Derek Brown, there was a lot of public domain. However, with him specifically, I never had to really worry about getting his life right because he's not a, he's, he's a fugitive, right? So the mm-hmm. odds of him coming out of the woodwork to come sue me are pretty pretty low. Um, <laughs> so right. Also, there are a lot of rules where if someone is mentioned in more than like several articles and or several news programs, which is the case with Jason and also a lot of the supporting characters, then it's fair game because they it's a by then it's a public figure, right? And, and so a lot of the people involved in this case are have public figure status because of how much coverage there was on this story. Interesting. So, yeah. You know, when I wrote the screenplay on spec originally, and I had the script optioned by two production companies. And at that point, by the way, once you have your screenplay optioned, it really does become kind of the producer's problem or, right, the, or right. the buyer's problem. However, I would say, because I now am experiencing this with my next film, The Socialite and some other scripts, I have all of which are true crime, that the tricky thing about it is you kind of, if you can get a piece of IP, it does protect your script because it protects you and your script because it's, say, a production. Fortunately, I have great producers who really believe in me. But if a production company or a buyer, say they want to buy your script, Take, and then they want to go buy an article, they can keep the article and not keep your script or the book and not keep your script. Right. So as a writer, I think to protect yourself, you know, when it comes time, it's, it's a good practice to go out and option stuff on our own or, or get shopping agreements on your own, um, which I've been doing now as I've been setting up next projects. I have a couple, you know, I have two books and an article, you know, that I'm like circling. So, you know, I think it's a good practice when you do true stories because sometimes buyers are, you know, they're, they're going to want to get something eventually. Um, in the case of American Murder, we actually know they, they, there was talk about getting something, but they actually ended up not getting things from what I know. Um, so it is just based on a true story, which some movies do, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of, you know, it's always a shape-shifty question, right? Because it it's a very much a case-by-case basis, but it's good practice I've been finding to, to get IP because... Yeah, sorry, sorry. I was just going to say, and some of this, I assume, was when you were looking on the spec for the feature, uh, or was this also when you were uh, doing the short itself? Yeah, because you did a short first of this. This wasn't like you didn't just jump right in and be like, hey, we're making a feature. You made like a short, and that helped you, I assume, get the deal to make the feature. Uh, well, sort of. So I wrote the script first back in like 2018. Gotcha. And then I was having trouble getting it read by people. Like people just, you know, it's very hard to get someone to commit an hour and a half in the industry, like sit down and read. Right. So, you know, now I had a pretty fortunate scenario because I had two shorts that had done quite well for me from and Modern, they were called, and they were right. opening a lot of doors and gave me a lot of meetings. But there's a huge fire truck on that. Um, no, no worries. They were, they were opening doors and they were helping me out. But ultimately, what I really needed to do to get my, to get this script seen and heard and read by people was to do a proof of concept. I kind of got that advice from a couple different 
very important people who are in my corner saying, like, you need to show what this movie looks like and feels like. So, you know, I went, you know, raised a little, like, raised, like, five to 10,000 bucks, and we went and we shot one scene from the movie to kind of advertise the screenplay, right? Right. And so it wasn't quite the same mission as, say, like, a standalone short film where it's, like, a story that pays off on its own. This was just shooting one easy, not easy, but it was a SWAT, SWAT invasion, so it was one very <laughs> hard scene. But a scene that shows like this could be fun, this could be cool, this is what this could feel like. And so we went, we did that. It had some great actors in it, Jonathan Groff, Amanda Crew, um, were awesome. And you know, that really I think helped kind of raise the script profile and got a lot more eyes on it. You know, and ultimately that led to many people wanting to read it or, you know, be interested in it. And fortunately the two companies that ended up doing it, traveling picture show. Uh, Kevin, which is run by Kevin Mattis now, Chris Buffell, and uh, GG Films, run by Gia Walsh, C3 Producers, kind of converged on me at the same time, teamed up, and uh, yeah, so I kind of got two sharks, <laughs> we're talking about Shark Tank, right, <laughs> coming in together, and they really uh, helped me and developed it with me, and, you know, I stay off and me did rewrites, and so that was kind of like my first, that was my, really my professional writing school, right, because before that I had never, I'd always written scripts on spec on my own in my, uh, in my studio apartment, which I still do, but uh, they were really instrumental to helping me kind of learn to take notes, how to develop something, how to really make it work and all that. I think this is a great, uh, jump right into the casting because the supporting cast especially is really pretty, I mean, really robust. It was very surprising. Like to look at it, like, damn, like everybody, there's a lot of really good talented people in this film. Yeah. And everybody gets their moment, you know, it's great. So talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, the cast completely exceeded any expectations I ever had of who and what we were going to get. I mean, it was a, you know, like you said, it ended up kind of being a pun intended murderer's row. Um, you know, <laughs> and we went to cast the movie in March 2020. So it wasn't, it didn't look like the best time. You know, uh, mm. like we just didn't know if like, you know, how things were going to pan out with COVID and the world was in lockdown and you know, but I convinced myself, I said, you know what, we're going to shoot this year. Like, I don't, I don't care what happens. We're shooting and we're shooting in 2020. It was a weird thing. I was like, I'm determined. And I, you know, and I had to like keep myself up. I was like, you know, oh, we're going to do this. And I kept my team, you know, informed. And we were with my cinematographer, my editor, we working really closely with me, my production designer, my brother was the composer. So we were all kind of like keeping this, the energy of this project alive, right? even though it really was, it really didn't. I, I kind of was like, we're probably not sure. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 we're going to, we're going to. And, um, you know, we made our first offer to Tom uh, for the lead in April 2020, right when Ozark dropped. Wow. My producer, Gia Walsh, yeah. had recommended it to me, him to me, and I, or, I watched him. It was one of those, like, in five seconds, it was very clear this was the right guy. You know, he had all the right traits to play Jason because this is always a movie that the rest of the cast is going to fall around who plays Jason mm-hmm. and you know fortunately because Tom's performance on Ozark was so strong and very well received by you know the industry at large and all that um, people really flocked uh, to it and and actors were excited to work with him you know and be in a movie with him just because at the moment he was a habit so you know that's how really like first that first it was Tom then came Ryan and once Ryan and Tom were the one, two, it was pretty. It, right. The then it's a lot easier to say, hey, here's who's already in it. And everybody, it's a lot easier to get people to jump on board. Exactly. Yeah. And so it was really once those two were, were locked into, to, 
the two leads, then the rest of the cast starts coming out. And then they were just like every week was like, oh my God, Dina Menzel said yes. <laughs> Jackie Weaver said yes. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you something funny about Jackie Weaver. I was, uh, I was doing a, a, that, her, she has two scenes, one really long scene, one shorter scene. And I was writing her, her scene was not as long as it was originally. And my producers were pushing, they were like, you can make this scene even better. And I was kind of like, I, 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 I did what I wanted to do. How much better can you get? They're like, no, no, no. One of the first goes, if you write this really well, you could get Jackie Weaver for that. And I, huh? I laughed at him. I was like, you're crazy. Mm. I was like, I was like, I appreciate your confidence in me. You're nuts. We're not, she's not going to do this part. And then we all did it to her and just taking that shot. And she did, you know? So it was really, and I think part of what it was is look, I think, you know, everyone was excited about Tom playing this role and the script, you know, certainly was good enough to get them to come and take a chance on a first time director in their in their eyes but i think also they were coming out of a time when you know we were all locked out right and everyone people, really wanted to work like everyone was kind of like ready to get back on set did. and so i think that really kind of showed up on set the energy that was there people were really you know excited to do something and to do a movie that's personal and you know all that so i think it really um I think it really came together nicely, and that's why we got such a great cast. In part, it was it was a combination effect, and it always is. Right? You know, luck is where opportunity meets hard work. Uh, I butcher your quote, but yeah, 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 yeah. When opportunity meets a preparation, right? Yeah. Uh, there we go. That's that's it. it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, we were preparing. We were working so hard on this thing nonstop, and but we never knew when it would grow, right? And and it did, and it did in a way that really exceeded, yeah, all the kind of expectations. I mean, this cast was, working with them was a total uh, dream come true. And I don't think any other time all those people would have, you know, are one through eight in terms of the principal cast. I don't think any of them, I don't think all of them would have been available at that same time. It was pretty rare, you know, because they all work nonstop, too. Right, That's no, the they're, mm-hmm. yeah, but, the, you, but just that, you know, the planets aligned with the uh, the pandemic and coming out of it and everything, I mean, I'm sure it sounds like that was a really uh, awesome opportunity. You guys ended up shooting out in Utah, right? Why, I mean, why why did you pick Utah, and uh, how, how was it getting everybody out to a remote location? Well, you know, at the outset, it was, um, you know, my producers were interested in Utah and New Mexico because they have tax incentives, right? Um you know, New Mexico, I think, was going to be more challenging um, for this movie. And so Utah, I thought, was interesting because actually the real Jason Derrick Brown lived in Salt Lake City for a very long time. Um, the real crime took place in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Um, right. But at the time, Arizona had no incentive. Um, and we kind of always needed a place that could be multiple locations because mm-hmm. you know the real story kind of went all over like it went phoenix to orange county to you know uh henderson to this so i kind of you know decided to kind of punt the actual real locations where the movie takes place and kind of give it like you know middle Amer- southwest american town city world right yeah, I think, yeah absolutely universe for the movie and salt lake city Slash Utah ended up being totally perfect for itself. You know, it was first suggested me for a tax incentive reason. I kind of was like against it, but I just and the rebel in me was like, ah, come on, that's not it. But then I went out there with my cinematographer. We went on a scout. I actually have a great mentor, um, Ronaldo Marcus Green, um, who's an awesome guy. He was the one who told me he was like, dude, you got to go out there with your DP and you got to check it out, like, and make sure it's right for the story. Like, that's what matters most, right? So. Yeah. 
they might be suggesting it for a tax reason, which is great. Six tax reason does help you, so you don't want to fight that. But go out there on your own time and your own dime and, you know, see it and see if you can shoot there. And then we didn't even have to go on our own dime because on back for indie filmmakers, if you have some financing um, or if you're like in the midst of getting financing, film commissions will often fly you out and put you up to show you their uh, state because you're a potential business for them. Um, so me and my cinematographer went out at the Utah Film Commission. They had us come in and showed us around and took us on a preliminary scout. And when we did that preliminary scout, it was very clear this was the place to shoot the movie. How, how far, what was the, the time between your scout and to uh, actually the uh, principal photography? I think we scouted at the end of 2019, I want to say. And we shot November 2020. It was about a year. And I think the in part because of uh, COVID, you know. Well, that was probably another wouldn't... question was, did you have to push at all? We did. Uh, I mean, it was, just, you know, because I, I had about a year of development on the script. One year I turned in, I think, 10 drafts of screenplay for them. And I did many drafts before that year. So just to be clear, if anyone thinks, it's, oh, you did it in 10 drafts, is way more. <laughs> it was easily like 30, 40 plus drafts. Just stop counting at 10. Yeah. yeah. Uh, exactly. Um, you know, I turned in 10 officials to them, but there were many between those two. So, you know, my manager, Billy Ray, always says, Milos Foreman did uh, 47 drafts of Amadeus. For, he had Peter Schaefer did 47 drafts of Amadeus for them, for him. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> Peter Schaefer was like the best writer that ever lived. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we're all at this league. Well, it, it shows, yeah. too, you know. <laughs> it does. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, um, we, I think we were kind of always like, you know, when I first entered the development of them, you know, it's always like from when you turn in the script, right? It's like, yeah, we can be shooting this in three to six months, right? That's kind of once you get a green light, that's kind of when you can go, right? From the financier or producer or studio if you're in a bigger league than I was. But, you know, it's always like a three to six. So I think, you know, it was always kind of like, I remember 2019, we were like, yeah, we might shoot in late 2019, early 2020. You know, I think we were like aiming to shoot spring of 2020. Um, but you know, that's when we started to cast it. So we didn't, you know, we didn't have our actors. So we actually like didn't push quite as much as I thought we were going to, because I thought we were going to get pushed to spring of 2021 as our film, filming date. That was what I thought was going to happen. And we ended up shooting sooner than I expected. Uh, cause when fall 2020 came around, that's when, in winter, and that's when we really went for it. I was kind of like, Oh shit, this is happening. <laughs> yeah, there going. is definitely that uh, uh, that shifting that happens of like the shifting into gear and where you go from like, oh man, you've been talking about this forever and thinking about it, and then oh shit, we got to actually do it now. Like, <laughs> and that's a little bit of a yeah. little bit of a gear mental shift. Um, you it is entirely. I think it's set in two thousand four. You said right, like or it's in the early two thousands. Basically, the story. Uh, it's set in two thousand four. Yeah, yeah, right. So I mean, the production design seems like that's got. Quite a few challenges, especially somewhere out there in like Utah, where you probably don't have a lot of production resources of people that do period stuff all the time. So, how how did your production designer and everybody like? How did you guys? I mean, it feels like pretty authentic to the early two thousands yeah. to me. Nothing stood out in a negative way. So I'm just a I'm I'm, I'm impressed you were able to pull that off in such a way out there. Uh, well, thank you. My production designer Megan Bell is excellent. Uh, she's done a lot of it. She's done a lot of indies, and she's actually done a lot of period budget movies like she did a movie in the 90s right before nine um called what breaks called what breaks the ice which mm-hmm. is one of the movies that maybe want to hire her. um she was excellent about that and she's very she's a very good eye for detail and anything that feels not period 
there's some things that are in there that she still cringes over, like a sink or something. And I was like, Meg, it's okay, chill. We got them. <laughs> but um, that's who you want in a production designer, right? You want someone who's that. Like, I consider myself pretty detail-oriented, but she's, like, another level. Like, she's, like, she has, like, x-ray vision. Um, and it's really great. It benefits you. Um, you know, I mean, I think it was a challenge, you know, because we didn't have a lot of money to make this movie. And so, you know, I had her, and I we also had a really amazing prop master named hunter nelson who also was super passionate about this story and this character mm. and he really like went out of his way to make sure every detail of like the cell phone and the video cameras because you know the funny thing is like for me because i was kind of concerned about how we were going to pull it off right and i started to really see that it's actually technology that seems to be the most like pivotal thing in terms of dating mm-hmm. stuff because 2004 and now like don't look that different it's just it's really the technology and then some like choices. It happens so fast, it becomes very obvious. Yeah. So, you know, once the technology was right and the props were right, like the flip phones and the video cameras and, you know, the lack of smartphones and and flat screen TVs, you know, it, it became pretty, it wasn't as hard to pull off as I thought. The wardrobe was more challenging because that was really like finding clothes that really looked right, Mm -hmm. you know, and felt those periods was, was a bit more of a challenge. But I mean, I think also my cosplayer, Jackie knew all she did an amazing job, like really getting these people in the right looks um, to really feel that early on. Yeah. You know, I had a reviewer, uh, not a reviewer, an interviewer say he felt like he was in GTA <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> uh, I was like, I love that. It's great. So it's a, so um, this whole movie know, is a side quest. Is that what you're saying? The, uh, <laughs> exactly. It kind of is actually. I did. <laughs> I did, um, so just to circle back on your uh, props master, also want to talk about, and this specifically for the filmmakers as well, the a question about the armorer. Um, if you want to talk about yeah. that as well, it would be awesome. Yeah, you know, um, I'm actually, uh, this, today is the one-year anniversary yeah. of uh, mm-hmm. Pauline Hodgins' death. I was her classmate uh, at the American Film Institute. Um, so I knew mm-hmm. Pauline quite well. Um, and it was such a tragic, awful thing that happened. And we should hold her, you know, in the light today, everybody, because we lost someone because there wasn't the right protocols on that set. Um, in terms of our set, you know, we did have a really good armor. Um, and he made sure, you know, we were always as safe as possible. We did shoot uh, quarter round blanks, um, you know, on, on set. But again, the protocol was super safe. We actually didn't shoot as many guns as, one would think in the movie, we were very limited on what we had. It's not a very, the American murder is not that violent of a film, despite the title. Um, it's more psychologically violent, I'd say, than like actually, like in terms of showing tons of violence in the film. But, um, you know, it's, we made sure to obey the proper protocols while filming and to be as safe as possible while shooting uh, blank rounds. Um, but yeah, I mean, my armor, my first ADM in my hip also was really truly and a first ad is so crucial to a set as you guys know like it's yeah. maybe one of the most important jobs if not the yeah absolutely most important job um and he was a true pro he's a young guy too he's like 29 or 28 and he you know he was really just incredible about keeping the set safe um and you know we were shooting uh this movie was made on a tight schedule you know we only had 22 days to film it so okay. it's not a lot of time but i really think that yeah, uh, i think the next question there. For, 
Yeah, I thank God for having really, you know, a first-rate crew. This Utah crew really came together and, again, also came at a time where people weren't really working and mm-hmm. things coming out of tough times. And I compared it to, like, a great sports team in the Great Depression. You know, it was like <laughs> they all just came around and rallied and were so excited about the movie and making it. They were only, we were the only movie filming there yeah, I mean, that's um, indie yeah. film sets are just they become like little families in their own little universe. And I mean, at least the totally. good ones are. And it just is a truly unique experience to be there at that time with those people. So that, that I imagine. Yeah, it, it, it that's one of my favorite things about indie films is like hearing all these stories. And everybody carries them forward, you know, like all they all have these little reunions and like meet each other. And it's like a little period of time that everybody did. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so yeah, it was really, yeah, I'm very grateful to my team because, you know, and my producers too, because they, everyone prioritized safety. Um, it was not, it was, you know, it was a very safe and very smooth, despite all that we were trying to do. And I think no matter how ambitious you are, um, and I'm sure I know you, I imagine you guys are very similar knowing that you made your first movie and all that, you know, safety and prioritizing that absolutely always comes first. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So now you guys are in the hands of, uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher the name, Saban? Isn't it Saban? Saban Films, yeah. Saban Films. I was like, I can never remember exactly how to say it. <laughs> Saban Films and Universal, right? And you guys are in, I think you hit theaters today. Dang. Is that correct? We do. Yes, we're in 40 theaters nationwide today. Select wow. theaters across the country, a lot of cities. So. That's got, man, that's yeah. the dream, right? That's like awesome. That's the dream. You get like, you go see, hey, go see my uh, movie, my film. It's in theaters, you know? You can go check it out. See it on the marquee, the AMC. It's pretty crazy. We're not an AMC, so we're a lot. <laughs> uh, some, some megaplexes and uh, all that. So, yeah, no, it's very exciting. And look, I mean, it's such a, it is such a rare thing to get an indie film made, period, as yeah. you guys know. Like, getting an indie Ryan and I were interviewed by Drew Pearson. I didn't know who he was, so I don't watch any sports, but he's apparently the football player who caught the first Hail Mary. And he asked us both, he goes, what's your Hail Mary? And Ryan said, <laughs> making an independent film is a Hail Mary, right? Mm-hmm. Any independent mm-hmm. film that gets made is a Hail Mary because of how hard it is. So, you know, the fact that we get theatrical, um, period, was such a luxury. Um, you know, because I think a lot of people worked in thought, oh yeah, it's going to go to streaming because that's what everything does these days. And we will be on streaming next week, by the way. So if you cannot make it to a theater um, in the next 7 to 14 days, you can stream it as of October 28th on all VOD platforms. Um, but if you can come see in the theater, please do because, you know, we want to support the movie theaters. They need it right now. Yep. Um, you know, and we- right now Top Gun's doing all this. Oh, all, yeah. all the heavy lifting. So, but, you <laughs> and, know, and we know some indie films. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we know you have your next indie films already. You're working on your next script already, right? Socialite? Yes, sir. Um, you did your research. Um, yes, I'm working on the Socialite as of now. So that's, I'm planning to do that uh, late next year, late 2023. Um, so mounting that one and sending this one off and doing the promotion. It's kind of like at the very end of American Murder and at the very beginning of socialize so interesting yeah. cool man well so hopefully 2024 we'll see your name here again on uh you know matthew gentle socialite gentile, gentile yeah. jesus <laughs> matthew gentile socialite yeah dude well we well, definitely want to get you back on here for that for sure i you you have me for any movie i do there you uh, go. i'm yours um thank you guys so much it's such a fun interview you guys you know did your 
do your research, ask great questions, and it's cool to talk to fellow filmmakers. So thank you for thank you for what you're doing for independent filmmakers as well by creating this podcast. It's a great forum for people to learn, and uh, I'm grateful I can be on it. Hell yeah, man. We're just all trying to learn from each other, That's I think, right. trying to not exactly. try to make as few mistakes as we can. It's <laughs> such a thin razor margin anyway. So anyway, it was yeah, great. Yeah, I'm to check out your film. Yeah, dude. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great talking to you, Matthew. Filmmaking is a collaborative experience, and so is this podcast. Please take a second to subscribe so you know about future episodes and leave a review. It really does help us. For more info about today's guest, please visit independentfilmmakersguide.com, where you can check out all our episodes that run the gamut of filmmaking topics. Hey friends, we just wanted to take a quick moment to talk about two personal things. First, we wanted to thank you, our listening community and our wonderful guests, learning so much together along the way and continuing to learn, sharing our stories, making a lot of new friends and collaborating, which is exactly what this is all about. Which also brings me to my second point. In great part to many of these new relationships, we wanted to let you know that we've taken a lot of this advice ourselves and made our own narrative feature film, Heard, H-E-R-D, Heard, which is premiering this October on Friday the 13th in select theaters as well as on VOD. Personally, I think it's the perfect kind of scary movie to watch during our favorite scary season. So we'd love for you to celebrate with us and watch Heard. You can pre-order it on Apple TV, and of course, do the communal thing, see it in theaters. Of course, for all of this, please see our show notes, but basically, we're going to keep it all updated at herd.film. That's H-E-R-D dot F-I-L-M, herd.film as well. Thank you again, and be sure to give us a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to build this community and collaborate. IFG, how movies get made.